Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this New Books Network in Anthropology. I'm your host today, Yadong Li, a PhD student in Anthropology at Tulane University. So, talking about producing news in today's China, what is the first image emerging in your mind? Are you thinking about some heroic figures who keep revealing truths in the face of an overpowering authoritarian regime? Or do you imagine, do you imagine, imagine a more desperate picture? with all the tampering, fabrications, and the political forces involved in news production. Well, both of the two pictures may be true, but anthropology, anthropological ethnography, based on long-term participant observation, may help us to complicate the whole picture. And this is why we are so excited of Professor Emily Truss' new book about the news sector and news producers in post-socialist China. This new book, The Currency of Truth, Newsmaking and the Late Socialist, Imageries of China's Digital Era, is published by the University of Michigan Press. And thank you for coming today, Emily. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you also for engaging so closely with my book. Um, as I could tell from the questions that you shared with me earlier, um, I'm really honored and grateful that you attended to my work so, so, so thoughtfully. So I'm looking forward very much to the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for producing such a wonderful book. And reading the book is a very enjoyable experience for me. So I'm very excited to chat about it with you. Emily Troy is assist- assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the National University of Singapore. In her academic work, she focused on the media, information technology, global capitalism, and also authoritarian state politics, especially in China and also Singapore. And the book we will discuss today, The Currency of Truth, based on her fieldwork among newspaper journalists in Guangzhou and Beijing, is a book greatly contributing to all these topics above, about media, capital, and authoritarian regime in today's China. So first, Emily, let's talk about what brought you to this specific project about journalism, about newsmaking in today's China. Share with us your stories. Yeah, for sure. So um, I was born and raised in Singapore, and I think uh, growing up in Singapore, I was always a little bit 
fascinated by the idea, the figure of the sort of revolutionary intellectual, <laughs> by the idea of a sort of people's movement against the injustices of global capitalism. Um, and I had this sort of heroic image of the journalist as a sort of intellectual vanguard of that kind of movement, um, kind of a sort of May 4th sort of an, an enlightener um, figure. Um, in my mind. So I always had this sort of fascination with the, with the idea of the, the journalist as a writer who writes to awaken the masses to their plight and so on. Um, and then as I, as I was sort of preparing for college, I actually worked briefly at a newspaper in Singapore. Um, and I quickly learned, of course, that the day-to-day -day work of being a journalist has nothing to do with any of these romantic ideals and lofty ideas. Um, so I didn't decide to become a journalist, but then when I was doing um, my doctorate in anthropology and I knew I wanted to work in China, um, the figure of that sort of truth-speaking, um, you know, enlightening journalist kind of came back to me as a figure that I might go in search of. Um, so if it didn't exist or if I didn't find it in Singapore, maybe I would find it in China. Um, so, I, so I went into this topic with sort of these imaginations of the very heroic um, journalists, which, you know, China has a long history of these heroic figures, you know, whether it's the investigative journalists of, say, Nanfang Zhou Mo, or the journalists and intellectuals of the Mao era, um, or even Mao Zedong himself, who is obviously a very compelling sort of reporter of sorts. Um, there is this sort of lineage of heroic, patriotic writers. Um, so I kind of went looking for that heroic figure and obviously, again, found a reality that was much more complex, um, but that that's sort of what I had, the imaginations that led me into the field. Was it? Very interesting. So actually, you entered the field with all this heroic imagination about journalism and about news producing in China, but gradually with fieldwork, you actually complicated the whole picture, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, that, 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 that sort of doesn't really answer the question, why China? Why, so, so if that's what I was looking for, why China? I think I think China sort of appealed to me as the site, um, the field site of choice, because I think um, when you're standing in Singapore, China looks actually quite different than when you might be standing in America, say. Um, so compared to Singapore, you know, China seems to have this much wider and, and, and actually much wilder or much richer array of different forms of life. Um, you know, because Singapore is a tiny country, it's like smaller than uh, two districts in Beijing or Guangzhou. Um, and so I think when you're coming from this tiny country and looking at this large one, you don't see, you know, images of uniformity and homogeneity and top-down control um, at, at the way that that image sort of, you know, dominates sometimes. Um, the imaginary of China in more Western contexts. Instead, I think you kind of see the diversity and the, the, the ungovernability that comes with such um, physical scale and also the sort of cultural and intellectual richness that comes with having a long civilizational history. So Singapore's history is much, much shorter. <laughs> it's um, independent in 1965. So it's not even really 60 years of history yet. So whether it's in space or time, if you stand in Singapore and look at China, it's this very fascinating place to go explore. Um, so I, so exactly, I went searching for this heroic figure in this what seemed like a totally wild, and, um, rich um, terrain. And then, yeah, when I got there, I learned a lot of much more complex realities. Um, equally enriching, but certainly different than what I had, had imagined. Thank you so much. It's extremely interesting to see this connection between your personal background, you know, your Chinese people from Xinjiang, Singapore, but also you're very interested in the heroic uh, 
picture of news producing. And finally, all of this brought you to China. And finally, you think you find all this completed picture in news producing sector in China. It's just amazing. It's always interesting to know more about how anthropologists became anthropology and brought them, what brought them to this, you know, their current project. So thank you for sharing with us. So I grew up in the Chinese mainland, and I clearly know that a contemporary Chinese society, you know, cannot be understood in clear-cut dichotomy and in a very, you know, black and white way. And as anthropologists, it is our responsibility to complicate the situation and take more factors into account in order to challenge existing stereotypes. So, yeah, I think you did a great job in this book about to about how to complicate this stereotype and to challenge the existing stereotype. So, as New Books Networks has many audiences, we thought too many too much knowledge of today's China. Could you please let us audience know what is the conventional understanding or in other words, a typical outsider view of news sector and especially about Chinese media and how your work challenges all this, you know, understanding and all these stereotypes? Yeah, thanks for that. Great question. I mean, I think the crudest sort of conventional view of China's news sector, outside view of China's news sector, is obviously that it's all propaganda, right? That's the sort of uh, roughest uh, stereotype you can imagine. Um, the, the idea that everything that makes it to print just basically comes from the Communist Party or has a stamp of approval, and that it's made, it's, it functions to just brainwash people into supporting and obeying the political authorities. So that's a very Cold War image, right, of a completely dehumanized communist world where the, 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 the press is just this total machine, that there's a central source of control, control is, is total, um, and people just basically become brainwashed minions, right? The term brainwash obviously having originated from that time period. Um, and that sounds like a very ridiculous, stereotypical image right now, but it's actually a motif that still circulates today in different degrees of disguise. So, I mean, it's amazing how many um, news articles in the sort of English language news world are about not China, but news in China. So <laughs> news making in China is itself considered a newsworthy topic, right? So there's all, obviously... Although, you know, the, the, the images maybe aren't so rough and crude anymore, that, that motif is really still there, right, of, of news in China as a propaganda machine. Um, I think uh, the significantly more nuanced view of China's news sector that we get in a lot of academic writing on the topic um, is a little bit more complex. So we would say that, okay, although there are these sort of top-down structures of command and control, actually the individuals who staff the industry right, are not as thoughtless or uncritical or as powerless as that image suggests. Um, so a lot of academic studies have very rightly shown how there are, for example, um, heroic investigative journalists um, who very bravely you know, put their careers and futures on the line in order to expose public truths, um, who are very creative and resourceful in, say, towing the boundaries. Um, this, academics have also written about, say, um, reporters in Xinhua in the most um, uh, ostensibly controlled news outlets. Even within those institutions, there are sort of internal critics, there are internal discussions, there is internal dissent, um, and actually some room for negotiation, some maneuvering. So I think a lot of academic studies have um, uh, rightly um, set us straight and, and told us that, you know, that this isn't uh, just a picture of perfect command and control. There are diverse ideals and objectives. Um, I think 
a very agreed upon um, sense within academic writing on news in China is that there's constant negotiation. Basically, um, the news industry is actually populated by very differently positioned um, stakeholders and players with very different ideals and objectives. And actually, the product of the news sector, what we see printed or in the website, is actually the outcome of a lot of contestations and negotiations and compromises that we're not aware of from the outside. So I'd say my work really builds on that foundational insight that's established by a lot of academic studies of news in China. Um, but I think I also tried to do something a little bit different, um, a little bit more. Um, I think what I felt was that a lot of studies of China, although they would recognize that there are these pockets of exceptional journalists who are critical and brave and um, you know, not so um, just simply obeying. Although the, a lot of studies would recognize that there are these handfuls or small groups of, of very good exceptional journalists, they still seem to assume that the majority of sort of run-of-the-mill news reporters um, actually are kind of obedient or complacent or compliant, right? Um, or if they didn't assume it, at least they didn't go out of their way to trouble that assumption. Um, so there was sort of, there's sort of this motif, right? There's this like um, this good minority in a scenario that on the whole is pretty bad, but there's these good minorities. And so let's write about these exceptionally heroic handful of journalists. And I, I found that motif still quite problematic. Um, and so what I wanted to do, I guess, was push against that by doing an ethnography of absolutely ordinary, non-heroic journalists um, and showing how they are also complex and idealistic and striving to achieve abstract goals, right? So they're not, you know, they're not getting um, pursued. They're not getting arrested for defying censorship orders. They are just making a living at some level, but they also have abstract goals. Um, and they're not one-dimensional caricatures that they've sometimes been represented as being. Um, so I wanted to, to, to sort of use ethnography to bring out the complexity of the really non-heroic ordinary newsmaker. Um, and I think my way of doing this was to try to write about their day-to-day -day endeavor um, to be good and worthy news professionals um, in a context where there are always political and commercial considerations pushing their pens, right? Sort of guiding them, constraining what they can write. Um, political and commercial considerations that they cannot afford to ignore. Um, I think um, journalists in China are often, because that's the condition under which they're writing, they're often written about as though they have no principles or take no pride in their work. And um, obviously that's not true. And, and my way of trying to access that truth or surface that truth, I think, was to focus on the opposite per perspective, to sort of look and see um, what is it that they're proud of in their work? What do they take pride in? Um, um, and so to try to understand and write about their practice from the standpoint of their abstract ideals and aspirations. So that's the goal. <laughs> so it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I think just think about into this China, it's very easy to have a dichotomous understanding. It's like A versus B, South China Morning Post versus People's Daily. But the most important thing is it's people working in this field and people has their agency. So that's why this ethnography is very important for us to understand how 
news-producing sector really works actually in everyday life in the interaction between all these people. So let's talk about your methodology and about your fieldwork. So to reveal the complexity of the Chinese news sector, you did your fieldwork with the identity as an intern journalist in a newsmaking office. So please tell us more about your fieldwork, especially what is the most significant challenge in your fieldwork? Yeah, I think fieldwork is probably the best, for me, the best part of being an anthropologist, that you get to sort of live another life that's not exactly someone else's life, but it's not exactly your life either. It's kind of this weird life that emerged in the interactions between you and these people that you you, you otherwise wouldn't be talking to. Um, so fieldwork was certainly for me one of the best sort of aspects of, of, of being an anthropologist at all. Um, in terms of challenges, I think one of the challenges was just trying to keep up with the journalists. Um, they are so quick and resourceful and effective, I think, at, ma at making news from getting contacts to doing interviews to writing their articles. And as an intern um, and a foreigner and um, a newbie in so many dimensions. It was hard just to keep up with them, but I think I actually learned um, through my struggles to keep up. I actually learned, I think, what a lot of fieldwork skills from them that I continue to practice since. So, um, for example, um, not being too precious about cold calling people or always taking the first possible opportunity to meet with someone face-to-face -face rather than try and find a date that works well for you. Um, or just staying calm um, and not not thinking that, you know, everything hinges on whether or not you get this interview. So a lot of practices that they engaged in actually were quite parallel to the practice of, of, of a field worker, of an ethnographer. Um, and I think through the struggle of trying to do that kind of work at the pace that they do it, um, I really, it really helped me become better at, at, at the kind of um, ethnographic work that I have to do as an anthropologist. Um, so that was one challenge that I think came out quite fruitfully. Another challenge I'd say was actually trying to manage my relationships with people who also had relationships with one another. So at, within the news organization, and then also within the sort of news scene or journalist circle as a whole, there were always, of course, sort of groups, right? Almost factions, and there's sort of political relationships between these factions. Um, and so I had to learn to um, be a bit more of a political creature than I was before that. Um, just to, in order to sort of keep the channels of communication open that I, I wanted to keep open. Because, you know, if you get associated with one group, then you, you might sort of lose access to candid conversations with people who, you know, sort of position themselves as antagonists towards that group. So all kinds of politics that I hadn't really been trained for or expected. Um, those are challenges for me in the field. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing with us all these challenges in your field. So basically, this is an ethnography about newsmakers in post-socialist China. I noticed that you choose to use the word newsmaker rather than just use journalist in your work. So I'm very interested in who are they? Who can be termed as newsmaker? And could you please give us a general picture of your interlocutors? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, newsmaker is definitely a weird word. Uh, I think it was like throughout the manuscript, the word Microsoft spell check did not recognize that as a legitimate word. Um, it's a word I actually picked up from Dominic Boyer's book, The Life Informatic. Uh, I think the subtitle of that book is Newsmaking in the Digital Era. And I think he refers to journalists and editors throughout that, that book also as newsmakers. Um, that book is, is a significant sort of point of reference for my argument. 
Um, but what I like about the term newsmaker that I think is a common uh, uh, across both books is that um, it really identifies uh, what precisely what my interlocutors have in common uh, without actually saying anything more about them. So newsmakers are basically journalists, editors, marketing staff, executive editors or editors in chief, um, people who work at newspapers. And so when I list all of their sort of positions like that, it's clear that they have really different jobs and that come with different agendas and obligations. Um, but what they actually all have in common is that they are in a position to make news articles, um, to produce articles that can then get circulated, um, which is which is to say that they are in the position to make and use news articles actually as a kind of currency that they can use to pursue the different ob obligations and aspirations that they have. Um, so I think the term is useful because um, it, it singles out what it is that people working in news have in common. And they actually have you know, very, very different positions and objectives and obligations that I said, but what they have in common is that news can be their currency, the currency that they use to pursue these different objectives and agendas that they have. Um, so that's why I like, I like the term. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I also like the term because I can see the connection between your word choice and your argument you made in the book. It's very, you know, fascinating design, I think. So newsmakers write for the public, as you illustrate in the book. But you also say the public is not a given, static and a homogeneous entity. They are, you know, the public is constructed and it's open-ended. So who is the public? Or should I rephrase my question, who, for what purposes, and in what ways create the public? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, an important question for me in the writing of the book really was, um, because, because one of my main goals was to try to problematize the idea that news is even written for publics. Um, so I think, you know, in most discussions of news, including academic discussions, there's still this uh, incredibly resilient assumption that news um, should be written for publics and is written for publics. And the problem is just how well or badly this happens. Um, that image of how the news sector works is really uh, a product, almost an inheritance of the, the era of the golden age of sort of mass print and broadcast journalism. Um, that was the sort of fat middle of the 20th century when there were basically only a few big players that had a monopoly on their city's attention. So this was, um, you know, this is the model sort of basically coming out of the U.S. Um, um, but in that 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 period of time, um, you have these few major players. Um, so all the advertisers who have anything to advertise, right, will need to work through these large companies, right? These mainstay newspapers. Um, so those newspapers end up with huge revenues, and that revenue enables them to fund their content production. So they basically have an ample, they have a monopoly in the city's attention that gives them basically a monopoly on the advertising dollars, all the consumer product companies um, in that city. And that money can go to funding independent, uh, informative, objective, maybe entertaining journalism, right? News can be produced really for the readers, for their benefit, for their entertainment, for their information. Um, but what's changed since then is that in the era of online news, um, people writing about news you know, in the 
US and China will all agree that in the era of online news, that business model is basically over. It's basically dead. Um, and what, I mean, a lot of, of, of discourse in, in, I think, both practice and studies of news is sort of what is the future of journalism, given that that business model is dead. Um, and I think what I learned from the journalists I worked with is that uh, for them, the, the sort of way that they found to keep going on with their practice is, is that they've discovered that a news article in the online era um, can actually generate revenue for the news company without necessarily garnering uh, mass public attention. So in other words, while there's kind of a crisis around what is the, the news, what is, how do you support uh, news production you know, in an age where that old business model is no longer operative? Um, I think for the Times journalists, they kind of found in it an opportunity, um, which is that in, in the age of digital news, a news article can actually be used to form a partnership with a company or get a sponsorship or get in advertising revenue, even if you don't actually have a mass audience. Um, so I think, uh, you know, what, what, what one might find interesting in the ethnography is how the journalists actually don't assume that their articles are going to get read. Uh, they don't. They know that they're at some level writing for a public, but in reality, there might not be any public that actually reads their specific news article. Um, and that that is very particular to the Times' situation because they got a lot of their revenue from basically direct negotiations with companies. Uh, but I think there is a more generalizable lesson in there, um, which is that we really need to stop assuming that news articles are written for the publics they're addressed to. So. You know, in now that that business model is no longer functioning, uh, newspapers may still address themselves to publics, but that doesn't really mean that every news article they write and publish is actually written and published only with the public in mind, um, or that its function is is is, um, or that the public is 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 still playing you know, a crucial function for how the newspapers operate in practice and as businesses. Um, yeah, so that's that was that was. Um, an important important piece of the picture for me is to sort of take to shake up a bit this this very grounded assumption that you know news is still for publics. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So in the mm-hmm. book title and especially in chapter four, you use a word post truth to refer to the ethic of work in today's Chinese news sector. So how can we as readers understand post truth, and how does this term reveal the tongues? relationship between the business aspect and the so-called profession aspect of newsmaking mm-hmm. today's China? Yeah, I mean, the term, the term post-truth is a term that became popular in discussions of American journalism, specifically around the Donald Trump era, actually, um, where politically partisan news providers were citing so-called alternative facts, and no one would agree on what was true and what was false. Um, it, it seemed as though everyone had their own could could just have their own version of the truth. So that's um, what led to this term "post truth" sort of becoming a current one in discussions of news at all. And and that actually happened obviously actually quite a few years after I'd done the bulk of my fieldwork. So um, the term showed up later; it became available later. Um, but I wanted to use it uh, to, uh, to to sort of make use of this opportunity that was happening in the loosening up of American journalism's um, sort of self-image. Because um, up to that point, I would say there was sort of a pretty self-confident discourse uh, of American journalism on itself. Um, so basically, 
you know, in the geopolitical context, uh, the the idea is the, the sort of a view is that you know in America there is good and true journalism and um, sort of proper professional journalistic standards, and, and in China there's false propaganda. But now with with the Donald Trump thing happening and post truth discourses and alternative facts, there was actually this sort of crack in this image of American journalism. Um, and American newspaper newsmakers and news scholars were actually starting to think about a kind of systemic deficit of truth in the American news system. So I wanted to use that opening to try to um, propose some common struggles that journalists both in China and America might actually be contending with, um, which basically comes down to business models. And the fact that that sort of golden era news business model is no longer working um, means that journalists in both countries um, are not really free to just focus on delivering the truth anymore, right? Um, basically, journalists in both contexts are now being asked to apply their news writing capacities to other objectives besides truth speaking, right? And this can include writing advertorials or getting clicks and getting scrolls, generating traffic. Um, so because of this pressure, uh, in a way, we're all in a post-truth news era, or at least both of these um, news news industries are in a post-truth news era, which is really importantly not to say that we're in an era where all news is lies or where people just write whatever they want to. I think to say that we're in a post-truth news era, uh, in the context of my book at least, is to say that news articles are now made and used by newsmakers for more purposes than just communicating truth. Um, so they don't basically no longer have the luxury of writing news just for the single objective of communicating a truth, whatever the specific characteristics of that truth might be, right? Whether it's meant to be objective or propagandistic or entertaining, um, they can no longer afford to just focus on communicating the message. Their news articles really now have to, to um, do other things for the news company. Um, and that's also sort of my the, the main point in my argument about news being a kind of currency. Um, I think to call the news a kind of currency is to try to emphasize the fact that news articles are now used by people made and used by people in the industry um, to actually create and shape relationships, um, to relationships within the news sector that are essential for the survival um, of their news company, of their newspaper, even of themselves within the profession. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, true. So basically, I'm... Um... So as you as you as you said, I think we can see how posters is a relational, you know, word to show how complex that the, the 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 practice of news producing is. And so, in terms of your specific interlocutors, I want to know how do individual Chinese newsmakers strike a balance between the two aspects, between business and between profession, and keep their hope in the post-truth condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... That's a good question. So basically, when you're now in a scenario, in a situation where news has to function as a kind of truth, um, what you're dealing with is the fact that the, 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 the articles that you write 
um, have to serve a function, serve a purpose in the relational networks that you're in. Um, at the same time, I don't think that the journalists I worked with gave up completely on having any kind of true speaking ideals or objectives. They, they were always hoping to be able to write an article that actually had an impact on uh, an audience that wasn't just people within the news industry. Um, so I think um, the, the, the concept that I tried to develop to, to talk about this uh, balancing work that they had to try to do is, is the ethic of efficacy. Um, so basically, when you think of news in the traditional mode as sort of public communication, then news is governed by an ethic of truthfulness. That's the sort of established traditional kind of professional ethics of journalism should be you know, to always um, craft your news articles as much as possible to be able to deliver objective and neutral truths. Um, the ethic of efficacy is, is, I guess, what I came up with as the sort of um, alternative to that in a time where news is now functioning as a kind of currency. Um, and uh, it's sort of um, an ethic that is suited for or that emerges from a time when news articles have to be used for other things, such as maintaining relationships with political authorities and patrons or maintaining relationships with commercial partners and advertisers. Um, the ethic of efficacy is a way of approaching this condition Right, these demands on one's news article um, with a willingness to compromise on one's repertorial, reper, uh, repertorial standards and ideals. So the ethic of truthfulness would say, you know, it's you, you need to ma maintain, adhere to these principles of truthfulness, basically no matter what. The ethic of efficacy is one that's willing to compromise, that's actually willing to bend these standards and ideals of truthful reporting if the journalist can see that the trade-offs are worth it or necessary maybe. Um, so if the trade-offs are uh, you know, perhaps necessary for this, the commercial survival of their newspaper as a company, or perhaps the trade-offs are necessary for their own survival in the industry as a news professional, um, as, as a journalist. And if they, they aren't able to make these trade-offs then they aren't able to continue being journalists. In that case, then these trade-offs are, are actually um, important for the continuation of their of their endeavor to produce good journalism. Um, so I call it an ethic of efficacy because the ideal to which this approach is oriented is that of the practically efficacious newsmaker, right, who can use their news articles in a broad range of different ways that actually enable them to stay in the game. Right, to keep making news. So one thing that the journalists would sometimes say to me is that you know, an idealistic, the very idealistic journalists, the more idealistic they are, the, the sooner they quit. Because if they are unable to bend their standards or be flexible and be adaptive or close one eye, um, then they just, the, 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 the agony of um, the restrictions and the constraints that they're under or the kind of compromises that they're forced to make it's just too unbearable. And so they leave the industry and they go to any other kind of job, right? They could go to PR, they could go to, um, they could go into government, they could go any, anywhere, basically. They could do a lot of other things, but they stop being journalists. And, and once they've stopped being journalists, then they're actually of no use to the profession or to the, to the endeavor of um, public truth speaking at all, right? So, so the journalists I work with would actually, uh, did have this sort of principled position on the need to, not be so uh, entirely or singularly committed to one's own 
um, reportorial standards and ideals that you actually can't survive in the game because the game requires you to make compromises. Um, so, so it was through what I what I ended up trying to conceptualize as the ethic of efficacy, basically that they try to strike this balance between, um, you know, the demands, the compromises they have to make, and the continued pursuit of 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 an ideal of some kind. <laughs> exactly, I think yeah, you have shown how complicated and also how many balances you need to keep to be a so-called good journalist in today's China. Yeah, exactly. So during my reading, I can see that the Chinese Communist Party is an important but invisible character in your ethnography. Basically, we cannot discuss a book about news and truth in today's China without discussing the presence of the CCP. So I think the relationship and interaction between newsmakers, your interlocutors, and also the party is very important to the Chinese news sector and news producing practice. So many people may have an assumption that China's mainstream medium is merely a propaganda machine controlled by the state. But as you show in your ethnography and you mentioned in our interview, it is a very simplified version because people, because there are many specific people working in this field with their specific aims, interests, agenda, and strategies. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, what is the most appropriate understanding of the relationship between Chinese newsmakers and the party? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of studies of Chinese journalists really rightly point out that um, the relationship between newsmakers and um, party officials who interface with the news sector um, is really one of negotiation. Um, some people have called it uh, selective collaboration even. So there are instances where um, people on both sides um, actually have alignment in terms of their ideals and their objectives. Um, and when there is alignment, there is really room for cooperation. Um, and when there's not alignment, there actually still is often kind of room for some negotiation or maneuvering, although always on unequal terms, of course, right? with the journalists being the less powerful um, of these negotiating parties. But, but at the same time, I think uh, as a lot of studies of China have been very careful to point out that, you know, it's, it's, it's never a matter of overt coercion. It can't actually be, right? There, there has to be um, some arrival at a common agreement about what is the, the most constructive way forward for all the stakeholders of the industry. There's just too many, um, you know, it, it's a complex industry. It doesn't, it can't run on coercion. So I, I don't think my book is really saying anything dramatically different from that um, agreed upon established point among, I think, scholars of news in China. Um, I think perhaps slightly more than others, what I am trying to show in the ethnography is that um, the party and its interventions are a condition of journalistic practice in China rather than the content of journalistic practice in China. So I think a lot of times, um, you know, Chinese journalists are written about as though uh, the whole substance of their practice is to either obey or defy the party. As though they go to work every day and say, hey, today I'm going to obey the party or today I'm going to defy the party and I'm gonna spend all my time trying to <laughs> defy the party or spend all my time trying to obey the party. Um, I really wanted to write about news and journalism in China in such a way that didn't make the party the main character um, because it's not how journalists actually operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I was trying to show in the ethnography that being a good journalist in China involves a lot more complex struggles and undertakings and um, uh, goals than, than dealing with the party. So the party is, is just a sort of background condition 
And especially the fact that everybody faces it sort of eliminates it from the picture because a lot of actual, the day-to-day work of newsmaking involves rivalry, right? And competition, um, whether it's for funding or for attention. So the things that really make a difference to the journalists in their day-to-day life is the things that aren't equally distributed, right? If something applies to you and it doesn't apply to me, or if you have access to something and I don't have access to something, that matters to me. But everyone has to do with the party. So at that level, it kind of fades a little bit into the background because we everybody knows that everybody has to do with it. So it's just a it's a it's a level playing field. <laughs> True, I think it's a very creative understanding of making party a background rather than a major player in the game. It's very fascinating because I think it can apply to not only journalism but also many other aspects in today's China. And I think can't be helped. In Chinese, we say "没办法" is a very interesting phrase. Uh, you know, reoccurring frequently in your ethnographic observations and conversations with your interlocutors, and it is also what I always use in my everyday life, basically. So, can you tell us what is can't be helped, and can you give us more concrete examples of how Chinese newsmakers, you know, str- strategically negotiate between their reality and also their newsmaking dream, and how they express their effort in this in this phrase i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is such a such a useful phrase right <laughs> basically i think I, I tried to use it to delineate the distinction between um things that one can ch- change things that the journalists feel they can change they can aspire to they can struggle for and things that they can't um and what it's important for us, I think, as, as an ethnographer of this practice is to uh, be on the same page with them um, at that level, right? So you can't really write about journalists as though they can transform or overthrow the party or transform the conditions, the political conditions governing news in China. They can't, right? A single, individ- a single journalist cannot transform those macro conditions under which they are writing. So I think the phrase is a useful one for indicating whenever that's the condition they're facing. Um, and then for within that space of possibility, actually trying to find out, okay, so what is it that they do work on, right? Um, and I guess that's where, again, the whole idea of currency and and an ethic of efficacy come into the picture because what they are able to do is use the currency of news in different ways, right? To pursue more or less um worthy objectives or goals that they they could consider more worthy or less worthy. So, um, you know, I I very much stood, I was closest with the journalists of the politics section um, and and the story is kind of told from their perspective. Um, So for them, one of the less admirable and worthy ways of using the news as currency um, is just to make money. Right. So there were other sort of people or departments of the newspaper who were really focused on using the, the currency of their news articles to pull in as much advertising revenue as they could um, or um, to make connections uh, with in, in the industry or with um, government officials um, that would be useful to them personally. So basically trying to climb up, uh, climb up the news industry by using um, the articles of the Times as a kind of currency for themselves. Um, I think the politics journalists, politics section journalists whom I worked most closely with, they um, considered themselves to be uh, 
in a way more principled newsmakers um and that didn't mean that they didn't use news as currency it meant that they used the currency of news for other ends um specifically they were always trying to when they made compromises they were trying to make compromises that would um be beneficial to the continuity of their news making endeavor right so they might make a trade off but it wouldn't be in order to make more money it would be in order to um make enough money that they can stay in this job and not have to um you know quit and try and find a job that might pay them better right so to make their own profession sustainable for themselves um or you know they did recognize that the newspaper was a, a for profit company so if they had to make a compromise that involved um uh, you know maybe uh, eliminating facts from their articles in order to secure an advertising contract that would also be something that they would consider a necessary unavoidable maybe kind of trade off because the newspaper won't run if it's not making money it will simply be shut down by the people who started it and then there'll be one less newspaper in china so that's the kind of i think um undertaking that makes up their actual day to day lives thank you thank you so much i think basically what is interesting for me is that maybe it's seems like a very passive word but actually you shows it is actually a starting point of strategic negotiation in everyday life and in their work so emily digital technology is one of your major research interest and digital technology is indeed playing a very important a crucial role in news production all around the world so can you tell us what impact digital technology has brought to chinese news sector and to the practice of your interlocutors Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um I I've always found, I have a kind of a strange relation that I feel that technology has a sort of interesting place in the book where I didn't set out to I mean cuz one way to write the book could have been to say okay, what is the difference that digitalization makes? Um and that's not actually how I went about it. So so digital technology I think has both a very general and then a very specific place in the book. So um it's very general in the sense that um digital technology is kind of the char- a characteristic of the terrain that that I arrived at so it was already there I, I, I don't really tell a story of okay first there was news then there's digital technology and that changed everything i sort of make it part of the the, the island that i arrived at but at the same time digital technology does play this very specific and very crucial role actually in my analysis of how news in china works today um basically in in the development of the idea that news works as a kind of currency um so i think um the idea of the new of a news article being a kind of currency is anchored in um the digital the characteristics of digital news as opposed to printed news um so what digitalization of news does is actually free up it free a news article from the newspaper Right so if you imagine a printed newspaper every news article in the printed newspaper is kind of locked in that newspaper right the newspaper itself the physical newspaper has to get bought then it has to get opened up and get flipped to the page where you find that news article and only then will the news article meet an audience right whereas with digital news um it just it just has a url right it can it can be on any newspaper but it has it its own url and that url actually can get transmitted um through any kind of social media any kind of communication it's just a link right so the news article is 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 freed 
from the newspaper that published it, right? And, and that actually was really crucial to the Times' business model and then to, to how news articles can work as a kind of currency. Because the difference is that um, if, you're, if your article is locked in a printed newspaper, people have to buy that newspaper. And you have to be able to show your advertisers that many people bought my newspaper and that's why you should advertise with me. But once it's a link that can be transmitted and can go viral by, on its own, right? Then um, the news company, the Times was actually able to persuade uh, people to work with them um, just on the basis of the potential for the news article, the digital news article to circulate. They didn't prove you know, that um, this article did actually, this digital article reached so many eyeballs. But the fact is that there was always the possibility that this article could be transmitted or go viral, right? And that possibility was actually worth um, paying for or worth paying attention to for the the, the business partners that the Times um, wanted to work with. Thank you. So just, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, please. No, no, no. So just in that sense, digital technology really does transform the way that a news article works. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Fascinating, fascinating. I think they are all very important insights for future researchers to, you know, to, 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 to further explore, basically. So now let's turn to the theoretical contribution of your book. So my first concern is about Jianghu. Why do you choose this vernacular term in China to conceptualize the operation of Chinese news sector in your book? Mm -hmm, yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I chose the term, the vernacular term, because there's really no equivalent in English, right? There's no word that can capture uh, the richness and the suggestive, suggestiveness of this Chinese term because it's got so many layers of association from its classical origins, uh, uh, the phrase of Mozi, right? I think, uh, to its associations uh, with martial arts lore, um, so also it's everyday usage to talk about new kinds of industries and business circles and even to talk about officialdom. Um, so I think a good, a good, it's it's important or it's good, to, it's useful to use the vernacular term, I think, when uh, it's a situation like that where there's really no English term that could convey the layered meanings um, that this term conveys. Or in other words, when a reader who has the language, who has the native language, would would find something in that term that you can't, you know, get across to them if you don't use that term. Um, I think that's that's a good time to use the vernacular. Um, so in in my usage, the the, the term jianghu um, is a counter concept uh, to what Charles Taylor has called the modern social imaginary. Um, so that's a, obviously a famous work by Charles Taylor where he he just tries to sort of elucidate, make very clear um, what that. Um, self-imaginary of elite Western modernity was, right? And, and it's basically, or is, uh, it's basically an imaginary of society as a community of ontologically autonomous individuals, right? Who are all independently rational and who can then discourse on the basis of their own rationally derived uh, opinions. So this modern social imaginary that Charles Taylor um, you know, describes is very much the the basis of most traditional conceptions of the public. Right? The idea that the news will send messages out to this society of independently minded people who can then deliberate and arrive at a consensus. So the public, the idea of democracy, all of that is really founded on this idea of the modern social imaginary. 
Um, and the term Jianghu, I think, is, is a useful uh, candidate for a counter concept because it really channels and condenses a whole lineage of um, articulations, scholarly articulations of a different kind of relationality or a different kind of ontology that they find existing in China. So there's a really long, long sort of lineage of people trying to name this different form of social existence. Um, I'm thinking of Fei Xiaotong's idea of uh, Gerju, right, a differential mode of association, or there's Mei Fei Yang and Andrew Kipnis writing about guanxi, um, or um, John Osborne writing about guanxi among business people. Um, and then the work that I engaged with, I think most closely in the chapters, uh, by Petrus Liu, who's writing about martial arts um, lore around Xiaka. Um, so for, for decades, basically, all of these scholars of China have been writing about this other kind of sociality that is distinctive from the modern Western social imaginary, right? Um, that uh, in which the individual is not uh, an autonomous, self-contained entity, but rather is constituted by their relations to others and also their relational obligations to others. So it's really an alternate imaginary in the sense that instead of fixed and independent individuals, you have relations um, that are fluid and constantly shifting. And the person is only ever the sort of sum of those relational um, intersections. Um, and I thought that that was, that was uh, an important alternative perspective to news, really, if you, what is it to imagine news from this other social imaginary, right, where, where you don't have a mass audience of independent thinkers, you actually have networks of relationships, um, and every person is bound by their specific place within these relational obligations. I mean, I think if we can get into that mode, then the currency of news becomes a bit more, it, it feels, um, there's, it makes more sense, right, when we think of exactly. it that way. Exactly. I, I just want to ask what are the potential benefits and weakness of this strategy of adopting, you know, vernacular concepts in ethnography, in the conceptualization? And I think your answer has perfectly answered this question because, you know, through all the book, I can see many vernacular terms and concepts has, have already been used in your ethnography. You know, you just select them from the conversation between you and your interlocutors and just include them into your analytical framework. Do you have any information or do you have any, you know, thoughts to add to, uh, you know, this point about the conceptualization in ethnography and adopting vernacular terms, basically? Yeah, no, I think it's a really great question. And I hope I didn't use too many vernacular terms because I think um, the potential limitation or, or weakness of, of using the vernacular is that you know, I think it's great to use it when it really offers um, an alternative, when it's really useful for conceptualizing um, an idea that isn't in the literature, isn't in the discourse already. So I think, you know, the term Jianghu is a concept because it's a counter concept to Taylor's idea of the modern social imaginary. When it's not a concept, I think the vernacular term can sometimes be just a label um, and I think it's a bit, this is why I'm really hoping I didn't do this too much in the book, but sometimes you could use the vernacular and it looks like a concept because it's, it's a novel seeming word, 
But in fact, if you haven't done any conceptual work, then it's actually just a label. And you're sort of using it to sort of label something exotic, but you might not be processing it, right? Because precisely because you didn't make the effort to translate it, maybe you're actually just putting it there without processing it analytically, without making the connection that you actually need to make to the conversation um, that you're trying to have, right? So um, I think it is a, it is an, it, it's worth thinking hard about whether or not to use a vernacular term um, because you don't want to end up with a portrait that's full of these exotic labels <laughs> and as a result isn't doing enough sort of, a, of an analytical digesting of the foreign and the exotic that needs to be done. <laughs> Exactly. It's very interesting to read your book. And I definitely do not think you use too many, con you know, vernacular concepts. I really enjoy reading all these, you know, very interesting terms and how you complicate them and how you include them into your analytical framework. So let's talk about the future of Chinese news sector and news making. So as we all know, China is a very rapidly shifting country. So from the time you finish your fieldwork, you finish your dissertation, the publication of this book and also now our interview, there must be, there must have been lots of things happening in the Chinese news sector. So after this book, what has happened in the Chinese news sector? And are these, challenge, are these changes bring you new insights on your original observation in the currency of truth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, the fieldwork was done so many years ago that it's, it's I'm, I'm sad that it took me so long. <laughs> um, to, to write the book um, and that the, the fieldwork now seems like a, a long time ago. Um, and I, I think the biggest change is really the, the tightening um, of the conditions under which newsmakers are now working. And that's something that nobody can deny. Um, I think it's really very palpable that the, the room for critical reporting, the room for uh, just non- yeah, I guess more mostly critical or or just questioning um, journalism has definitely gotten smaller. Um, I would say that the journalists I worked with, many of whom are still journalists, um, they still adhere to the ethic of efficacy in the sense that they still look towards a future in which news articles that they write could have an impact could could constitute a public could bring an audience into existence and actually impact that audience. But I think there is sort of an understanding and almost a resignation to um, the idea that that is not going to happen very often, very soon. Um, that, that that there isn't going to be that that you know the 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 constraints on the industry have increased, and that's going to be the case for um, the foreseeable future. Um, so one major change has been this, this tightening. I think that there's a heaviness, um, of mood that set in at the same time, um, the newspaper itself is doing better and better as a business. <laughs> so the times has actually gotten more and more profitable. It's expanded its staff, it's renovated its office. It's doing really well as a company. Um, and that isn't actually an effect of a suddenly much larger readership, but rather um, more profitable partnerships with private enterprises, more um, better working relationships with the various government and party offices that they have to work with. So in other words, the currency of the Times' news articles has become more valuable than it was before. Um, and I think this combination of increased constraints and increased profits 
um, is actually a pretty sobering trend right, to observe. Um, it suggests that the news has only been drawn more and more into this currency-like mode of operation uh, where you know, it doesn't actually uh, have to generate a lot of public attention. It doesn't have to have a huge public impact. The business is still actually going and going better than ever. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, what the trend has been like um, in other contexts besides China, but I actually think this is a question that we can ask of news in other contexts as well. Right? So the end of the, since the end of Trump's presidency, right, has the crisis exactly. of journalism resolved itself? Um, have we just, has, has the American news industry gone back to great standards and, and uh, objective truth? I suspect that there's more of a continuation than a reversal um, and that we are globally sort of leaving behind um, the Habermas and ideals of the public sphere and we're moving into a very new and uncharted territory. Um, I think what we could say about this new territory in China and arguably elsewhere is that these new um, communication platforms and networks that we're building are communities where it's actually having a particular stake that makes people members of them. So participants in the, these communities are much more self-selecting and the participants in these communities are um, overtly interested. They have a particular interest as opposed to being rationally disinterested, right? So it's a really different kind of um, model that we're creating. Don't, you know, I think we'll have to see how, how the dynamics develop. Brilliant, brilliant. Now I can see you talk about the model and I can see the model is far beyond the context of China and it deserves further exploration in anthropologists and other scholars in other disciplines who are interested in the medium and also journalism to use in their own research, exactly. So as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is, what projects are you working on now and what's next? Yeah, um, I, I've actually, uh, my current project uh, is, is not about China and it's not about news. <laughs> so um, I'm actually doing work now in Singapore, um, but I think having gotten into the idea of currency through, through the book project, um, I, 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 it's really, it's really about book project that I know reading a lot of sort of anthropology of, of money, um, to, to think about this idea of currency. And that got me interested in looking at actual money. Um, so what I'm doing right now is looking, um, at, um, different aspects, it's still early stages, but I'm looking at different aspects of money and monetary technologies in Singapore. Um, trying to think about how money works as a medium for imagining and making different futures. Um, in Singapore, so from a very big country down to a very tiny island, um, and from sort of metaphorical currency to literal currency. Um, so I've been looking uh, at, I've been working a little bit with startup founders who are always trying to get venture capital, I'm thinking about VC money. Um, I'm also looking at talking to retail investors who are always trying to grow their money. Um, and in Singapore, there's this very emerging industry called the fintech sector so trying to use technology to change the way money works um, and I think so far I've gotten a very different perspective by working on this project because people working in these money worlds they really don't think about public discourse and public truth speaking or news as a very important thing at all um, their way of thinking about public and private goods their way of thinking about the future is really through money 
Um, but at the same time, what money is and how money works is really changing really quickly these days um, because of new payment technologies, right? Digital currencies, um, trends in financial technologies and investing. So what money is is really changing really fast. And I guess I'm just trying to um, surface and explore some of the new forms of concern and on the other hand, some of the new forms of indifference that are emerging um, as we sort of, I really feel in Singapore, we really are making our futures. We're trying to make our futures with money or like through money or with money as the language, uh, the medium of our imagination. So the stakes are pretty high um, in terms of what we're indifferent to and what we're concerned about. Um, so I'm hoping to get, yeah, get into that project. Yeah, you are definitely have very good work about all these interesting you know topics it's it's amazing to see how currency continues to play a role in your academic exploration and i definitely look forward to having you back in the future to new books network so emily thank you so much for coming to today's podcast thank you so much this is a really fun conversation yeah, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. So today we discussed a new book by Emily Trott, The Currency of Truth, Newsmaking and the Late Socialist Imagery of China's Digital Era, published by the University of Michigan Press this year. This book will be very inspiring and helpful for any audience interested in news production, digital technology, medium, and contemporary China. Thank you for listening to New Books Networking Anthropology, and we will see you next time.